Welcome again to our evening service. We're grateful for your presence. We are looking tonight at 2 Samuel chapter 6, the passage Jordan read a moment ago. And we're going to be talking for a moment or two tonight about Uzzah and the transportation of the ark of God. And as we look at this lesson, let me just very quickly say thank you to those of you who are visiting. As always, we invite you to come back. Very grateful for your presence tonight. We're thankful for those who come regularly. And we want to encourage all of us to dig deeply and to close out the year strong and to do all that we can to advance the cause of Christ in this community. I do want to say uh, just very quickly, we do have a lot of things that are upcoming this fall. I hope that you will take the opportunity to be a part of some of the activities that are going on. I promise you this, it'll bless your life. And so try to the best of your ability to find your niche and get involved. And so we want to encourage that. All right, tonight we're looking at 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we have an account, as you well know, of the transportation of the ark. And David, of course, is the one who is responsible for the transportation of the ark. David is establishing himself in the city of Jerusalem. He is king over the Israelite nation. And the ark is residing in the house of Abinadab. And in order for us to appreciate the events that are recorded here, I think it might be helpful for us to go back and look at the background to what's taking place here. So let me just ask you to turn back to the book of 1 Samuel chapter, well, let's just look at 1 Samuel chapter 4. First of all, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Ark of the Covenant is in Shiloh, which was west of the Jordan River, and that would have been north, due north, of the city of Jerusalem. And the children of Israel, they were at war, at battle, with the Philistines. And so they had the idea that if they brought the Ark of the Covenant with them, the Ark of God, that that would work in their favor. That would help them to be victorious. Well, they were wrong on both accounts. It did not help them be victorious. Matter of fact, the text tells us that 30,000 foot soldiers died. Not only was there a great loss of life on that occasion, but they also lost the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines took that Ark. And so down in chapter 5 of 1 Samuel, you remember the text tells us that the Philistines took the ark of God and they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod and they set it up in the pagan temple of their god, Dagon. And the text tells us that the very next morning they get up, they've got the ark of the covenant in that pagan temple and that pagan statue, Dagon, has fallen forward on his face. Well, the text tells us, note if you would, in verse 4, they rose early the next morning. There was Dagon fallen on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only the torso of Dagon was left of it. Therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor any who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. But note verse 6, the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors. Footnote, 
And the New King James says, possibly the bubonic plague. And so he ravaged the people. And so the Philistines realized very quickly, look, we don't want the Ark of the Covenant. And so they send it to Gath. And that's not a good thing. And so from Gath it goes to Akron. And then the text tells us that the Lord created a lot of problems for the people in Akron. And so what they came up with was this. We need to send the Ark, we need to send the Ark of the Covenant back to the children of Israel. They got the message very quickly, didn't they? Now the Ark, the Ark symbolized the presence of Almighty God. And that was, in many, in many respects, the heart of the nation of Israel. That was somewhat of the focal point. And so David is establishing Jerusalem as his home base. And that would be the center of worship, wouldn't it? And so in chapter 6 of 1 Samuel, the text tells us that the ark is then sent to Beth Shemesh. And unfortunately, a great number of folks died there. And so drop down, look at verse 7 for the sake of time. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. In chapter 7, verse 1, they bring the Ark of the Covenant to the house of Abinadab, said to be on a hill. And the Bible says, they consecrated Eliezer his son to keep the Ark of the Lord. And so it was that the Ark remained in Kerjath, Jerem, a long time. It was there 20 years. So when we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 6, to understand first and foremost, the Ark has been in the house of Abinadab for probably close to 70 years. 20 years, according to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Saul, of course, anointed king. Saul reigned 40 years. David is now king. He's been on the throne for maybe 7 to 10 years. So a long time has elapsed. And David decides the ark needs to go to Jerusalem. Now, there are some problems that we read about in the Scriptures in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel. So as they begin this procession, first and foremost to understand that there were some preventative measures in place regarding the transporting of the ark. God had spoken very clearly about how to transport the ark. Now the text tells us that what they decided was they were going to put it on a new cart and transport it. Now. When the Philistines transported the ark back to the children of Israel, how'd they do that? Do you remember? They used a new ark. They used a new cart or wagon. Is it possible that David, the children of Israel, simply borrowed from the Philistines that mode of transportation in terms of the ark? I don't know, but that's, I think, a valid question. But nonetheless, let's go back and look at Numbers for a moment. I want you to see something in the book of Numbers. And as we think about the place of the ark and the procession of the ark, a couple of thoughts come to mind. Number one, they could have avoided a lot of heartache had they only consulted the Word of God. You know, sometimes we get ourselves in trouble when we fail to go back and look at what the book says. Now, Maybe, again, they were borrowing from the, from the Philistines. Maybe they said, well, that's how they transported it. That's how we're going to do it. Well, we're not at liberty to borrow 
from those in the religious world around us. They are not the divine standard, are they? So look at Numbers chapter 4. In Numbers chapter 4 at verse 5, now listen to what the text says with regard to the ark and transporting that ark. Moses said, when the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. So the ark was to have been covered prior to the transportation of it. And then drop down and note, if you would, down in verse 15. In verse 15, Moses said, And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them. But they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting, which the sons of Kohath are to carry. Now drop down, look at verse 19. In verse 19, Moses said, But do this in regard to them, that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy things. Aaron and his son shall go in and appoint each of them to his service and his task. So God had very specific responsibilities resting upon those who were making up the tribe of Levi. And the Kohathites had the responsibility of transporting the ark. So now turn over to chapter 7 in the book of Numbers. And look at what is said in chapter 7. And see if God is not setting forth some preventative measures concerning the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant. So note if you would in verse 6. Moses took the carts and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two carts and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon, according to their service. And four carts and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari according to their service, under the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none, because theirs was the service of the holy things which they carried on their shoulders. So how then was the ark to be transported? God told them, didn't he? All right, having said that, let's go back and look now at 2 Samuel chapter 6 again. And let's just note the events as they unfold. In verse 1, the text says that David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. Imagine if you can, 30,000 people accompanying the ark to Jerusalem. It says something about their devotion. And David arose and went with them or went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from the ark of God whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And so here we have a picture of the ark of the covenant, those cherubim that were upon the lid of the ark. You've got the mercy seat. And then listen to what he said in verse 3. So they set the ark of God on a new cart, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. So they're transporting this ark. They put it on a new cart. And the text says in verse 5, Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord. 
on all kinds of instruments made of fir wood, on harps, stringed instruments, tambourines, sistrums, and on cymbals. Now note verse 6. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And now you have divine punishment. The text says, Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. Now let me ask this question. When you look at this account, some would say, well, that seems really harsh, doesn't it? To understand that God has, God has invoked certain laws. Those laws are to be respected, aren't they? Now, I said a minute ago, all they had to do was go back and consult the law to see what Moses and the law had said about transporting the ark, and they would have had no problems had they complied with that. But here's a question. What if they had said, you know what, let's just see what the law has to say. So they go back and they read, for example, Numbers, chapter 4, chapter 7, and they conclude, you know, God said this, but we've decided that over time things change, and so why not just put it on a new cart and we'll carry it to Jerusalem like that? What if they had, what if they had decided that? Would that have been right or wrong? been wrong, wouldn't it? So, so tell me, what's the difference in that? And some of our brethren today saying, you know what, we're going to go back and we're going to reevaluate certain doctrinal matters. We're going to go back and we're going to try to come to a conclusion about whether or not it's authorized for women to function in a public way, in worship to God. And we're going to go back and we're going to restudy this whole issue of singing praise to God. Can we use an instrument? Or does God prohibit that? Isn't it amazing that every time you read about people doing that, they always come to the same conclusion, don't they? The conclusion is, well, we've decided that women can do this. We've decided that we can now use an instrument. Now you say, well, why is that so relevant? I'll tell you why it's relevant. Because believe it or not, it is happening all across our brotherhood. I noted not long ago, I was out driving and I passed a church building and they had a fellow's name on a sign that was going to be speaking there. And I thought, you know, I know that name. But I couldn't quite place where he was from. And so... I went to Google, looked him up, found out where he was from. And I thought, and now bear in mind, I'm talking about people who have on the sign out front, Church of Christ. This guy is denominational to the core. So I thought, well, you know, I'd like to just maybe see what he was talking about. Well, I couldn't find it on their website, but they had a lot of other things on their website, including a lot of their worship services. So I just pulled one up. They have three worship services, two a cappella and one instrumental. So I thought, well, I'll just see what's going on with the instrumental. Right off the bat, you have a woman who stands up and 
tells people how happy that she is that they've come together to assemble for worship. And then she is the reader of God's Word in a public worship service. Does she have authority for that? And then they begin playing their musical instruments. And then when they come to the communion service, they have a man and woman come up in front of the assembly. The man offers prayer for the bread, and the woman offers prayer for the cup. Now I want to ask you, where did they get their authority to do that? They didn't get it in this book, did they? I can tell you right now, they did not get it in the Word of God. Now you say, well, why is that relevant to us? Because we've got some brethren, they have on the sign out front, it says Church of Christ, but they are not the Church of Christ, if you know what I'm saying. If you don't follow the doctrine of Christ, then how can you be the Church of Christ? You can't be. You know, people have this idea that doctrine today is not important. Wasn't that the problem with the people in us this day? You know, sometimes we have, sometimes, granted, sometimes we engage in an, in an endeavor because we think it's a noble thing to do, but we do it in the wrong way. Is it a noble thing to want to worship God? Sure it is. Is it a biblical thing? Yes. But we have to do it in God's appointed way. God doesn't give us the latitude, the liberty to just decide how we're going to do this thing. And elders in the Lord's church. Listen, we need to wake some elders up in the Lord's church. They do not have the authority to change the doctrine of Christ. Do you hear what I'm saying? They don't have that authority. There is not an elder on earth today who possesses the authority to bring an instrument into the worship of Almighty God. And they don't have the authority to use women in an expanded role in worship to God. And you say, well, is it really that, is it really that big of a deal? Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Look at 2 John 9. I want to read this with you. Look at 2 John. Rather than quote it, I want to read it. I think we need to see it in black and white. In 2 John 9, listen to what John said in the long ago. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. He's talking there about fellowship, isn't he? So let's just say that I'm a member of a congregation and we've got three services. And because they're using an instrument in one service and I don't agree with that, I'm going to go to the other service. Am I then absolved of any kind of guilt? Absolutely not. No, we are in fellowship with those brethren. And every time you put money in the collection plate, you're supporting that kind of false doctrine. So what needs to happen? 
What was it Paul said, come ye out from among them and be ye separate? Those who want to go to heaven are going to come out. Now you look at Uzzah. What happened to Uzzah? Struck dead, wasn't he? What about Nadab and Abihu? Remember those guys? It might not be a bad idea for some of our brethren to go back and see the smoldering bodies of Nadab and Abihu and come to an understanding God means exactly what He says and says what He means. God's very upfront, transparent, so to speak. Now look again at 2 Samuel. I mentioned a moment ago that in the transportation of the ark, they didn't get just any type of ark, any type of cart. They got a new cart, didn't they? And I have no doubt that maybe they had noble intentions. But again, they were doing things the wrong way. Now, the ark symbolized the presence of Almighty God. What was it that made that hill holy in Jerusalem? It was God, wasn't it? His presence? Turn, if you would, over to the book of Psalms for a minute. I want you to see something in Psalm 15. Look at Psalm 15. And listen to what David had to say. I want to maybe make some application in terms of our worship today. David said, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? All right, the tabernacle's in Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant's in Jerusalem. What was it that made that hill holy? It was the presence of God, wasn't it? So when we come together on the first day of the week, this is, listen, this is not just any kind of meeting, is it? I mean, this isn't like a Rotary Club meeting. It's not like a Chamber of Commerce meeting. I've been to those. You have too, probably. We have been to social activities. We've been to various meetings. When we come together on the first day of the week, this is unlike any other kind of meeting that we attend or assemble for. Why? Because the difference is we are in the presence of a holy God. Do we understand that? You remember what David said in the long ago? Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. To know that we are, as God said to Moses, you need to remove your sandals. Why? Because the ground whereon you're standing is holy ground. Maybe when we come to understand we are in the presence of God, when we come to that understanding, then we'll think differently about our worship. Really, it's all about attitude, isn't it? Didn't Jesus talk about worshiping God in spirit and truth, that is, with the right attitude? So the meeting that is our assembly, this is not just any meeting. And then the book that we use, when we teach class, when we preach the Word, everything that we're doing, it all goes back to one book, doesn't it? This is not just any book. It's not just a secular book. This is the Word of the living God. Go back and look. When the Word of God was read, for example, after the children of Israel returned from captivity, do you know what those people did? They stood 
when God's Word was being read, demonstrating their reverence, their awe for the Word of God. Is it possible that we have lost, you know, familiarity can be a good thing, it can be a bad thing. Is it possible we've heard the Word of God taught and preached over and over and over again, and so we just tune it out? You know, well, it's just another sermon, just another class. Listen, this is the Word of the living God. This is a sacred book. Paul said all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And then the songs that we sing. The songs we sing, in, they're not just any song. There's not some secular song. But rather the songs that we sing are directed in praise to Almighty God. We're not here to entertain ourselves. We're not here to be entertained, as some have the idea. No, we're here because God is the audience and we are the assembly. We are the participants. And we are giving God that which He is rightfully due. So you think about here we are in the presence of God and we're singing praise to Him. Is that different than when I'm riding down the road listening to the radio and singing along with maybe my favorite group? It's a lot different, isn't it? Why? Because we are singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. What about our communion service? What is it that makes that piece of unleavened bread special, the fruit of the vine? What's so significant about that? Is it just any meal, any common meal? Go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. See what was going on in Corinth. When we come together on the first day of the week and we partake of the Lord's Supper, that emblem, those emblems, there is divine significance attached to them. And so our minds are going back to Calvary. It might be the case that we have done it so long, over and over and over again, it's lost the luster. And so we look at it, well, just another thing we're going through. If that's the case, we need to reevaluate some things. This is not just any service. This is not just any book we're talking about. It's not just any song we're singing. Not just any communion or fellowship meal that we're engaged in. That is the breaking of bread and the fruit of the vine. What about our prayers? Now we converse with one another all the time. When we come into the presence of God and lift our voices to Him in prayer, it's not just any old talk. But rather, we are directing our speech toward the God of heaven, aren't we? Says something about the nature of what, what, about our, what about our giving on the first day of the week? When I take money and lay it aside to give that back to the Lord, and by the way, it belongs to Him anyway, I'm just a steward. That's not just any dollar bill I'm putting in the plate. That's something that has been set apart for Almighty God. And listen, let me just clear something up very quickly. I know sometimes folks get sideways with what's going on in the church. Sometimes folks get upset about 
how they perceive the money is being used by the eldership. And listen, I believe the church ought to be the most transparent organization on earth. I believe that. We give the money, we ought to know where it's spent. I have no problem with that. But we don't withhold our contribution because we don't like something. We're not giving to the elders of the Lord's church. We're giving to God. That's who is the one we're directing that money toward. And let me tell you what, if we withhold our contribution because we don't like something, that, my friend, is sin. That's a sin. Why? Because you're not giving it to the elders. It doesn't belong to them. It's not their money. That's the Lord's money. It belongs to God. So to understand the money that we give, we're giving it to Almighty God. Now, again, transparency, yes, absolutely. But to remember, the money we're setting aside and giving, we're giving it to God. It's not just any money. It's not like going to the grocery store. This is money that's been set, up, set aside to go back to the work of the Lord. So, one other thought very quickly before our time's gone. The priests had to sanctify themselves, didn't they? In terms of approaching the Lord. You remember what Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. When we come to worship, we ought to recognize the importance of being sanctified, set apart from the world unto God. So listen to what David said in Psalm 15 very quickly. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? Now listen. He who walks uprightly works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with the tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He who does not put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. Now here's the point. If we think we can live like the world Monday through Saturday, and then come in here on Sunday morning and worship God and our worship be acceptable to Him, we're mistaken. That's really the point of Psalm 15. We've got to live a sanctified, holy life, don't we? Didn't Paul say the grace of God's appeared bringing salvation to every man, instructing us that denying ungodliness, worldly lust, we should live how? Soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. All right, let's close. Let's have prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the many blessings that we enjoy in this life. We're thankful for your word. And Father, we acknowledge that we fail, come short of your word on many occasions. We pray that we would uphold your word in truth and love and that we would strive to the best of our ability to live a life that would be pleasing in your eyes. We ask, Father, that you would bless the work of the church here, bless every family, every member, Help us to be what you would have us to be so that one day we might be together in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, let me encourage you to come to Christ. I want to encourage you to put your faith and trust in Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus said, except you believe that I'm He, you'll die in your sins. If you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, and you would respond with an obedient heart. And that is, 
Repent of your sins, confess His name, be baptized into Christ. God will put you in the church. You will be numbered among the saved. And then the exhortation is, be faithful unto death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight, maybe your life's not what it ought to be, you're not faithful to the cause of Christ, could I encourage you to come back to the Lord who will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing.